Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. This is Thursday, June 8th, 2017. Chase Bank lies and gyrations to avoid scrutiny from regulators all contained in a major RICO lawsuit by some people who were sold loans that they say were already sold to trusts. Of course, the interesting thing that may come up is the Chase defense, which probably will be we didn't really sell any loans into the trusts. There was no such transaction. And yet, those same trusts went to court as the mortgagees or beneficiaries on a deed of trust and sought and obtained a forced sale of homesteads of thousands upon thousands of Americans. Good afternoon to those in the Western time zones and good evening to, the, to those in the East. Thanks for joining us. Follow the instructions you received when you called in in order to show my studio board that you are waiting with a question. The money trail, the paper trail, what's the difference? Well, we're going to get a taste of what that difference is tonight. Tonight we start a case study arising out of a lawsuit, a RICO lawsuit, that you can download straight off the uh, blog and the announcement for this show uh, at www.livinglies.wordpress.com in which the allegations reveal the result of investigations showing that Chase was misrepresenting its ownership of loans and asserting whatever rights did them the most good at the moment. It also asserts that they basically lied about everything in every part of the transactions with the plaintiffs in that case. Attorney Charles Marshall and Investigator Bill Padalo joined me tonight to discuss the findings of that investigation as reported in that RICO lawsuit that could break at least the chase part out of the whole fake securitization scheme and provide, I think, a pathway to breaking the fake securitization scheme involving all the other major banks. It's in these lawsuits of institution to institution that the bias of judges against homeowners and borrowers 
and just, you know, the average consumer that's considered a deadbeat, those things go away. This is institution versus institution that are basically stuck in the same position as the original investors and the borrowers. And so these lawsuits, this one in particular, I think, um, will reveal, in the case of Chase, how they manipulated the data, fabricated the data, and then used it to sell loans that may, in some cases, may not have even existed, but even if they did exist, that Chase did not own, nor did it even have the right to service. Because Chase did sell the same loans repeatedly, or it didn't, because Chase did own the loans, or it didn't, Chase either did fund the trusts, or it didn't. The trusts either did purchase loans, or they didn't. If the Chase defense is that their securitization was not actually completed, as I have repeatedly said on this program and on the blog, that virtually none of the securitizations claimed were ever completed, they were never settled, then they will need to show exactly where the money went. And assuming they mount that hurdle, they will still need to show that they own the loans in the first place, something they can't do. They used the crash in 2008 and the void that was created by the bankruptcy or disappearance of so many companies to simply claim ownership of loans with which they had either no connection or only the most tenuous connection. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And of course, this show is brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners just like you. For those of you who are contributors, and especially those who are uh, monthly contributors, we thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors yet, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call the main number, which is not the same number as to reach this show, 202-838-6345, which is our main number, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if my work on the blog has value for you, and the work of Charles Marshall and Bill Padalo is shown on, on my blog as well, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. In this lawsuit, the plaintiffs allege that the intention of Chase was to avoid detection of noncompliance with lender settlements, which, by the way, gives considerable support to homeowners who wish to toll the statute of limitations on FDCPA and other claims. And here is a quote from paragraph 30 in the complaint. Uh, 
it says that since at least 2000, defendants evaded their legal obligations and liabilities with respect to the proper servicing of federally related mortgages causing plaintiff's damage through defendant's misconduct from their scheme, their scheme to violate, and then there's a list, the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act, known as RESPA, the Truth in Lending Act, known as TILA, the Federal Trade Commission Act, known as FTC, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, known as the FDCPA, the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, known as Dodd-Frank, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, and the Fair Housing Act. Charles Marshall, attorney at law in the great state of California, welcome again to the Neil Garfield Show, co-hosting it with me. Always great to be here, as you know, Neil, very much so. And Bill Padalo. Once again, great to have you on the show. Since it was you, Bill, who dug, since since it was you who dug all this up about um, uh, about this lawsuit, and gave me the uh, uh, the salient points on it, which I have not read in its comp- uh, entirety. You probably have read more than me. How about you lay out? the bullet points for us to discuss about this lawsuit. Well, surprisingly, this this lawsuit has been um, available and online and talked about to some degree for a little while here, and it just kind of went underneath my radar screen, so uh, I hadn't really been privy to it until uh, earlier this week um, when I uh, had it uh, presented to me. So... Uh, when, when these cases, I think you predicted early on, Neil, that at some point these entities were going to start to cannibalize on each other and turn on each other. And in those types of cases, that's where much of the information and all of this is going to come to light uh, for all of us who have been uh, investigating it and, and arguing some of these arguments for years. To me, uh, reading this type of a case is like you know being a kid in a candy store because so much of the uh, very detailed accusations that are being made in here play directly into what I've uh, uncovered in all of my years of investigating and what I've been saying all along. And I I was specifically looking at this case from uh, the angle of the Washington Mutual Bank loans that were uh, being a a part of this uh, suit. Uh, Obviously, Chase is accused of this behavior dating back to 2000 in the complaint, but um, I, I had a more of a curious interest to, uh, to to really focus in on the behavior of these WAMU loans that they took over when uh, the FDIC came into, into play. And what I've been saying all along and what the evidence has pointed to um, and is that I always believed there was a shadow servicing system um, that Chase was using to basically park these loans they would, uh, that they were cherry-picking cherry and uh, going in and basically taking control. Uh, well, obviously they had control of all of the loans in the system, but they were uh, parking a lot of these into some sort of an off-servicing uh, platform uh, out, out of the privy of regulators and, and folks such as myself, and they weren't disclosing any of this in cases and discovery. Well, 
lo and behold, this this case really details uh, what they were doing in terms of creating what they call the RCV1 system, uh, how they would uh, take these loans off the books, tens of thousands of them, and for all kinds of uh, various reasons to uh, get out of the purview of regulators and you know, all kinds of sinister reasons as to why they were doing this. Um, this is a real clear picture of that. And so it's really, really interesting to, you know, to read these accusations about how, um, well, first of all, you know, everyone who listens to this show or has been reading the blogs, is pretty, it's pretty clear uh, the understanding that in the Washington Mutual situation that there never was any schedule of assets uh, that the FDIC was aware of. No, there was nothing that ever shows what it was that Chase got in that purchase. So in the servicing systems, obviously, that just gave them carte blanche to, uh, to control everything in there and, and, then, and do the exact shenanigans that they're being accused of in this RICO complaint. That is that they go in and they're claiming ownership to loans they don't own, that they, um, and some of these loans, maybe they didn't even have the servicing rights, but because of this information being in their systems, they were uh, uh, selling these loans, some that were even pledged to our MBS trusts, uh, so on and so forth. Um, and even after selling, they would still claim ownership uh, rights to the insurance claims, to the uh, HAMP stipends and things that they were getting through modifications. Uh, they were just, I mean, feeding from the trough here from every, every direction uh, when it appears that, at least the allegations are, that the vast majority of these, these loans, the data, they didn't have, they don't have any of the collateral files, they don't have key information in there as to even borrowers' names, account numbers, uh, even the notes, all of that sort of thing. So uh, it, it's, it gets really, really detailed, and there's a lot in here, and it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting complaint. The, uh, just to interrupt you for a second here, I, I think it's worth explaining to our audience how all this is possible. And the reason is that unlike securities and a variety of uh, uh, other types of assets, these loans are not, or the transfers of these loans, are not on any exchange or registry. The original mortgage is, of course, recorded in the county records. But the exchanges, and that's why they created MERS, and in the case of uh, Chase, they used, well, they used MERS for a while, but then they used a uh, uh, an entity that they controlled, Nationwide Title Clearing, to do the same thing as MERS, and just create all kinds of false title and whatever fabrications are necessary, just like the whole MERS and LPS in Jacksonville, now known as Black Knight, uh, were done. So if a group of loans was sold in what is considered a private transactions with a lot of public impact, but there's no place else other than the transaction that you can actually see what was 
purchased or whether it was purchased. On exchanges, like for bonds and things like that, there's at least a little more. Uh, for the derivatives, there are no uh, exchanges that can be uh, uh, tracked easily except in ICE in, in, in Iceland. So it's very easy. Imagine if, if you could sell your car and you didn't have and, and, and you gave what looked like an original title signed to the buyer and you didn't have registration of the car with the state. Well, you could go ahead and sell the car another 50 times. And then eventually, and then as people, you know, maybe complained because they, when they started looking for the actual car, they weren't finding it. Then you could settle with them for pennies on the dollar or whatever uh, to keep them quiet until you get a lawsuit like this that says we're not going to take it anymore. And what you find in this lawsuit is that these are companies that enter the picture between the time of the, well, you have the original so-called uh, sale of securities to investors that where the securities are issued by empty trusts. And then you have the so-called loan closing where the note is issued in favor of a payee who has nothing to do with the loan of money. And then these entities that are in this lawsuit are the people who sought to buy uh, loans in the secondary market. Those are the people who don't have a stake in maintaining the status quo. They want their money, and they intend to get it. The investors, the managers of those funds, have a variety of reasons of not wanting to reveal that their entire portfolio of mortgage bonds is probably worthless. And, of course, the borrower screams that they're dealing with people who are not their creditor have been largely ignored. But these people are also institutions, these plaintiffs, and they're being heard. And I think they're clearing the way for homeowners. Charles, what do you think of that? No, I agree with you uh, completely on that. Uh, because one of the things that could happen from this lawsuit is it could create a leading wedge to allow consumer borrower lawsuits to go forward. Uh, one of the advantages of having this be an institution-to-institution -institution lawsuit Though, frankly, the plaintiff institutions are David's to the chase of Goliath. I mean, you know, I, I, I did a little background research, uh, frankly, mostly limited to the Internet uh, re regarding this case. And it's striking how the attorney who's, who's bringing this case, yes, you can see he's got really solid experience 
in the area of law implicated here. Uh, he was an assistant U.S. attorney, which makes him a prosecuting attorney uh, for more than 10 years. And he handled a number of these types of complex business litigation issues. So at the front end, this is right up his street anyway. But when you bring this type of suit, I mean, Chase is at the very top of the pyramid on the other side. You know, I think our listeners know that as well as anybody. And there's some major causes of action that have gone through here related to fraud and negligent misrepresentation. And I believe the reason those are going to go to trial of the nine causes of action, I mean, there are potentially others also, but those are definitely going forward. And I think the reason they're going forward is because there's some really blatant fraud going on here. I mean, the allegations center partly around the, uh, the claim that Chase was coordinating for the sale of, of you know, these, these tranches or, or buckets of loans, which, you know, you can sell them off in the dozens, hundreds, or thousands. It's not clear from the pleadings whether these were sold off in the dozens, hundreds, or thousands in terms of, of the plaintiffs here. But I don't think these institutional plaintiffs here are big players. I think they're, they're smaller, more mid, middlemen, intermediary-type type, uh, institutions. Right. And they, they basically – they thought they were buying first lien mortgages with bona fide uh, checklists for everything, including the borrowers, including their financials related to the purchase. None of that was provided. It was all smoke and mirrors. And these weren't even personally in mortgages. And the borrower is not even connected to some of these mortgages. So it's, it's really outright fraud. And that is going to trial. So that's a huge, huge deal in what's happening here. I mean, this creates, as I said, a leading edge, a wedge for borrowers to bring similar suits. Now, of course, we're going to be dealing with standing issues when we bring these suits. But the very fact of this going on is a big plus for our side. Well, one one thing I want to point out, and from a forensic uh, standpoint, is, and I thought there was a real incriminating uh, portion of this complaint, talking about their Fortrax uh, servicing system application, and that's the acronym for their foreclosure tracking system, um, which is their automated system the, for uh, loan default tracking, uh, loss mitigation, foreclosure processing, bankruptcy monitoring, that sort of thing. And Chase is being accused here of providing uh, data that they would put into this system uh, that they would cobble together to try to make it look like it was a legitimate uh, loan data tape uh, with all of the right characteristics and information on a borrower's loan. And they, they even call it a Frankenstein tape uh, of data here that's like, that they would create. And, uh, you know, just patchwork of information to, that they would put in there just to uh, accomplish whatever uh, they were trying to do in the sale or uh, in some proceedings or whatnot. And as long as I've been investigating and looking at discovery documents coming back on WAMU loans that Chase 
would claim ownership of or uh, those WAMU loans that Chase would then assign to players like Penny Mac or this LSF9 or you know all these other different entities is that when you seek the uh, loan history uh, in the servicing platform because Chase and, and WAMU were using the same MSP servicing system platform even at the time WAMU failed, the data in the screenshots should be consistent uh, dating back to the original time of the loan being entered in the system. And what I would see for years now is inconsistencies with the data. And it, it all it depended on the case, the jurisdiction, and, and all that sort of thing. But um, you'd have some WAMU loans where they would, they would come in with the full loan history. Some they would come in with no history whatsoever uh, prior to the FDIC receivership. And you would say, well, how can you claim to have a WAMU loan if you have no servicing information of that loan coming from WAMU? Um, and so you would have, I would see all of these inconsistencies in the cases, and I would point that out and say this makes no sense, that you're, uh, you're manipulating the data, you're, you're in some sort of cut-and-paste fashion, you're uh, manipulating investor codes, uh, on this stuff. You're simply saying uh, it's bank-owned, we own it, and that's as far as you need to go. And the accusations that, in, that are made here, the very detailed ones, are very clear in their, of what they're doing, and that's exactly what I've suspected all along, is that they're cutting and pasting and cobbling together servicing records, and therefore, uh, the next time a witness comes into court claiming on a WAMU loan, for example, that uh, they're the servicing rep and the witness and they have personal knowledge based on business records, boy, I'll tell you, this is a, a good one to try to blow that one out of the water in terms of the validity of this data and where it came from. And what I see here <clears throat> is uh, what we knew uh, some years back, which was that Chase pulled out from the systems that were being used by the other major banks, namely uh, Mortgage Electronic Registration Systems, MERS, and LPS, DOCX, etc. And they replaced it, they replaced, replaced MERS with a nationwide title clearing company uh, as a parallel tracking system because by it was only by creating that company and using it that they could uh, manipulate the data. If they were relying on recorded documentation in the county records, they couldn't manipulate the data because it was right there. And so you've got MERS being reflected in Nationwide Title Clearing Company, and then you have LPS Lenda Processing Services, and what was DocX, uh, now Black Knight, uh, uh, being uh, reflected in four tracks. So whatever, if you've got a Chase case, uh, you should avoid getting going down the rabbit hole looking for... MERS, although there was a time that Chase did use MERS. 
but in most cases, it's going to be nationwide title clearing company uh, or one or another entity that they control um, uh, that replaced MERS. And Fortrax basically does what LPS does. And if you're looking for an explanation of what LPS or Fortrax does, this lawsuit gives it to you chapter and verse by the fabrication of data, manipulation of data, and it's by a, uh, um, it, it, it's done by third parties who are controlled um, for the sole purpose of being able to foreclose uh, and even hide the foreclosure so that they can sell the loan. And this is what's been going on for the last uh, 12, 15 years. And when the, the Great Recession hit, the emphasis became, uh, uh, the emphasis went to foreclosure um uh, uh and at the same time the emphasis went to sale more sales of the same loans and the reason is because they could and the regulators were completely asleep at the switch and as a result the almost impossibly complex crash that happened in 2008 has been compounded by subsequent multiple sales of so-called pools of loans. And, and Charles is right here, that these players, while they're institutions, are small, relatively small players. There's only $300 million involved in, uh, uh, in this lawsuit as uh, potentially compensatory damages, maybe there's punitive damages as well. But these players are in a unique position to come in as institutions that are not trying to get out of a debt or get a free house or whatever. They just want what they paid for and Chase can't give it to them because they frankly don't own these loans. And the, the ultimate result is going to be the payment by Chase to these plaintiffs, either by settlement or by collection on a verdict, that will be helpful uh, for homeowners, and, but it will only be helpful to homeowners if the attorneys track this case carefully and do whatever they can to get hold of what discovery is produced. And generally you have to get that from the uh, attorney involved for the plaintiff uh, unless something is filed in court. Um, but you can also reverse engineer it and simply uh, get, it's much easier to get what was asked for. So when you, if you can get the actual request to produce, if you can get 
the request for admissions. If you can get uh, the interrogatories, those will tell you in a case like this a lot of the things you should be asking about. Now, whether you do it in discovery or you wait till trial is a tactical thing which lawyers differ on. But if you really want to understand this, then by all means, I would say study this case. So, Bill, what do you see at this time as the effect of this lawsuit on your further investigations in connection with other cases? Well, obviously it helps, and I'm, I've got a trial coming up uh, next month, um, at least we're on schedule for that, uh, dealing with a lot of the issues of uh, the, you know, the Wamu Chase loans. Um, and we're going to trial because uh, of, of many of the uh, theories, opinions, facts, and evidence I've put forth uh, thus far that ties into this uh, complaint right here. But, uh, you know, when you mention that this suit probably or inevitably is going to settle, I mean, most cases do. Uh, they don't want to get exposed on a grand scale. Um, but cases like this, when you have hypothecation fraud and clear evidence of selling loans you don't own, it's is synonymous with a with a giant Ponzi scheme, and that's really what what's going on here. Um, the argument when people have been going into courtrooms now for the, for years, and the judges uh, even to this day uh, say, well you took out a loan, you owe somebody the money, and I don't see anybody else standing here in the courtroom today seeking to enforce it. So, uh, you know, the, the closest party is the one standing here. I'm going to grant it to them. Well, the reason, again, and I've said this before, that in these situations, the reason why no other potential the real investor is likely out there and does exist uh, is that they're still being appeased and paid behind the scenes every month through advances and all kinds of other things to the point where they don't know that they should even be there uh, trying to defend uh, the collateral that's that's you know being threatened in a foreclosure proceeding and so this does not homeowners are not protected whatsoever uh, you know you have this the even over the decision in California when they said listen people don't owe a debt to the world at large they owe it to an, a particular party well that particular party most often we're coming it's becoming more evident that they just don't know who that is and and in some ways the debt really is owed to if there is a debt to the world at large to some degree it's the investor community the people that put up the money way back yonder but those parties are clearly unidentifiable um, but 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 moving forward um, I'm hoping that this case is going to bear more fruit that uh, that some of the documents that I've been looking at in the um, docket are going to become unsealed at some point. There's an awful lot of sealed stuff in this case that Chase doesn't want the world to see. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of um, evidence uh, that's going to hopefully come out of this at some point and others. I'm, I'm predicting that this isn't, we're going to start seeing a lot more of these cases. And like any Ponzi scheme, they, they eventually come and die and come to an end. They can't go on forever. And uh, we might be in that sixth, seventh inning here, but it's going to come to an end, and it's not going to be pretty. <laughs> 
I, I I agree with that. And Charles, just to raise a point we talked about, I think last week, <clears throat> it's cases like this where you need massive resources to do a large scale investigation that basically price the individual homeowner out of the litigation market on cases that the homeowner could win if they were able to perform uh, or hire people to perform the investigation work necessary, but which very few individual homeowners actually have those resources. And at the risk of hitting a sore point for some of those listeners here who I, I'm identifying, um, I think this cries out for a mass joinder because we can't get class certifications in, in the current, under current rules. Uh, it's almost impossible. Um, uh, so the the only thing to do, um, in, in my opinion, is mass joinder. And the problem there has been that there have been some well-intentioned and some not so well-intentioned efforts to do mass joinder uh, as simply a business venture. And I think that what we... Uh, what we need here is a real mass joinder action that involves independent lawyers and uh, dozens or maybe hundreds of homeowners who are being hurt by antics like what we're seeing here in Chase. What's your comment on that, Charles? Oh, I I can see uh, a mass joinder as being not only an effective way, but possibly the only the only way that will get traction in the real world to try to vindicate all the consumers and borrowers who have suffered similar machinations related to Chase. I mean, Bill Padalo has been tracking these Chase issues related to the merger with Wamu years ago. He's been tracking these for years, and this is kind of one branch in the New York, you know, area. And the, the, the interesting thing about this case is that I am sure there are tons of consumers and borrowers in New York who are impacted by this. And I think that that's one venue where a case could be brought. Because particularly if this case, even if it ends up settling, just with the causes of action that have gone through, the biggest hurdle in New York or California or anywhere else is going to be standing. But a lot of the other predicate uh, issues in this case, I think, will be establishable, and I think we can establish them. And for California, you know, Northern California is still a venue for joinder cases that has not seen uh, much activity at all. Joinder activity in California has been mostly confined to Southern California. There have been issues with that, 
I think Northern California, particularly with the San Francisco district being, you know, of the four districts in California, federal, of a bad lot, San Francisco is the least bad, meaning, you know, the judges in San Francisco, the, the, the district out of, you know, Northern district, which operates out of San Francisco and Oakland primarily, also San Jose, but uh, San Francisco and Oakland are really the big players there. Uh, bottom line, what I'm trying to say is that you as a borrower, you as a consumer will be able to potentially get real traction with a joinder case in Northern California. And there are so many dense and developed facts in this case. And as both you, Neil, and also Bill have mentioned, uh, you know, it would be great to be able to get the discovery related to this case. And we'll, we'll have to see how that, that progresses. Um, but well, somebody no else question. asked. Yeah. And there's no question that there's a lot of fodder here that we can use. There's no question that, that this case is a leading edge to, to really go after institutions like Chase and mass joiner is a way that will get their attention and, and potentially put them on, on the defensive in a way that is very difficult to do with, with an individual lawsuit. Yeah, uh, I, before I, before you, I forget, Neil, there's a, a document I'll send over for the listeners that you can uh, post as a follow-up, but I was kind of surprised they actually name a lot of borrower names in this lawsuit, and there's a list of loans uh, that are the subject of uh, the, the disputes in this case we're talking about. And there's a long laundry list on there that actually give address, or not the address, of the city, state, and borrower last name and loan amounts of these loans that they were buying for literally pennies on the dollar. So you, some of the listeners out there and the people can peruse through that list, and it might be very helpful if they find their name on there. <laughs> Okay, I'll post that for sure. You send that over to me. And so. let me say real quickly, I know we're coming up to the end of the program, but just the, the listeners understand, this is a business-to-business deal that went south here. I mean, basically, Chase knows they're carrying all this bad paper where they don't have the bona fides on anything, not even as to these being first lien mortgages. And they're trying to pawn this off and rip off you know, a significant institutional player. And that player, in fact, several players have pushed back and sued them for several hundred million dollars. I mean, this is what this is about. This is Chase almost doing a a sort of version of money laundering where they're trying to sanitize really bad deals, really bad loans, really bad securitization scenarios, and get it laundered through somebody else picking up the pieces and selling it to them if these are as as if these are all, you know, due diligence confirmed firstly in loans, which they are not. Yeah, they're, they're just they're just replaying the whole beginning of the securitization fraud and Ponzi scheme. I mean, <clears throat> they never intended to uh, take that money and put it into the trusts and have the trusts buy existing properly un- underwritten loans they they intended to take that money for themselves and to cover their what they did with it 
with by making uh, uh, loans through originators. Well, that's all the time we got for uh, this week. Uh, taking off next week, we'll be back in two weeks. Thank you, Charles. Mar- Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.